everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation, May 29th, 2022, and Jerusalem Day, the, the 28th day of Sivan, 5782. I know you guys missed me. I'm so sorry I haven't been putting up my podcast weekly. It's just been a really, really busy time. The tourists are back, and I'm out, and overnights, and whatever. So it's all good, but I, I do feel badly. So I'm making it up to you by having the most amazing guest on this week's podcast. Um, Mati Friedman, who many of you may remember, I've interviewed him before. So every few years he comes out with like an outrageous book. Um, so we're going to talk about his next one. Um, and I'll just read his official bio. An award-winning journalist and author born in Toronto, based in Jerusalem. His work has appeared regularly in the New York Times, Atlantic, Tablet, and elsewhere. His last book, Spies of No Country, Secret Lives at the Birth of Israel, definitely interviewed him on that one, you guys heard that, won the 2019 Natan Prize and the Canadian Jewish Book Award for History. Pumpkin Flowers, A Soldier Story of a Forgotten War, was chosen in 2016 as a New York Times notable book and one of Amazon's 10 best books of the year. And his first book, The Aleppo Codex, won the 2014 Sammy Rohr Prize and the ALA Sophie Brody Medal. So I am not alone in thinking that he is an incredible author. And this last book, Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen in the Sinai. Mati, I know you're insanely busy speaking everywhere. Thanks so much for joining me today on Rejuvenation. Thank you so much for having me. So this book, you seem to find like the stories that are there, but nobody's like people kind of know about it, but nobody's really delved into it. Um, and this also, Who by Fire, the incredible story of the late singer, songwriter Leonard Cohen came to Israel during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Like, first of all, what made you think that this would be a book to write? I was looking for little stories that seem to be peripheral, but are actually big or stories that can tell you something really important about this country or about, you know, humanity in general. And um, I've always um, tried to avoid herds of reporters as a reporter. And I always try to be alone reporting a story that no one else has come up with you know, in part just to differentiate myself from what everyone else is doing. And, and also ultimately, because I've discovered that it's the small stories that are actually the important ones and the, the political stories of the day, you know, prime minister said this, uh, the, you know, American president said that that's ultimately pretty ephemeral. It doesn't really, it doesn't really last, but a great human story um, can really, you know, it can have an impact and it can have a long shelf life. So that, that's the kind of story that I look for. And I knew about this story relatively late. I mean, I think many Israelis have kind of always known that Leonard Cohen showed up in Sinai in the Yom Kippur War. I only discovered it when he came here for a concert in 2009. And I happened to read an article about it in one of the Israeli papers. And it just struck me as being completely bizarre that Leonard Cohen, one of these maybe, you know, one of the great stars of the 1960s. Right. He'd already had these major hits like Suzanne and Sisters of Mercy and Famous Blue Raincoat. And he was a major star and kind of a bohemian character who I associated with, you know, this life of the 60s and the village and poetry. And what was he doing at the Sinai front in Yom Kippur, 1973? And it just always struck me as something that needed to be unpacked. And because I'm Canadian, it also struck me as mm -hmm. you know, a Canadian-Israeli story. Right. There aren't too many of those. And a meeting between Israel and the diaspora, which um, which is always kind of a, that those meetings are of interest to me in part because they're complicated and uncomfortable. And my readers are people who are negotiating that very meeting. They're often people reading in English about this country. And it seemed that that very strange moment in rock and roll history might say something very deep about, you know, Jewish history in the 20th century. 
You know, music is, uh, is such a window into what a country is thinking. And you and I have seen in the years that we've been here, in the decades that we've both been here, a tremendous change in Israeli music. I mean, from the days that Ben-Gurion didn't let the Beatles play here because he thought it would be a bad influence on the teenagers, can you imagine? And now what we're seeing is a lot of like prayers and psalms that are put to rock music. There's like a completely unique genre of music that's being born here that I think is saying a lot about the country. But this book is about not an Israeli, and it's not... It's not Hebrew music that he's playing here. I mean, he's coming to a front. And, you know, those of us who are listening to this now in 2022, we know what happened. You know, he's, in, he's coming in the middle of the war. They still don't know what's going to happen. We know that it turns out to be an incredible victory that's not seen as such in Israeli society. You ask anybody about the Yom Kippur War, everybody's faces fall, even though it really turned out to be an incredible victory by the reservists. But he's coming in the middle of this, and for all he knows, he's witnessing Israel's like last breath. Do you, how do you think, I mean, like, what did, when you researched this, you know, were you able to like get any insight into what's going on, you know, in his mind when he's showing up here and why? So one of the big question marks for me as someone researching this story was what was Leonard Cohen thinking? And I started out by, by finding Israeli soldiers who'd seen Cohen and that took a while. It wasn't that easy, but that was part of the story that I could report. I guess I should say there's basically no official version of this. There's no record of it in the IDF archive. Nothing was filmed. So it wasn't that easy to put to piece together what had happened. But I did what I could on the Israeli side. But but that question that you asked, which is what did Leonard Cohen think? <laughs> that <laughs> remains quite obscure. And um, it, the problem was solved thanks to a very interesting manuscript that I, that I found in a university library outside Toronto in Hamilton, Ontario, the McMaster University Library, which turned out to have a 45-page typed Leonard Cohen manuscript that he'd written immediately after the war and never published. And that manuscript, parts of which I quote in the book, uh, shed a lot of light on where he was in his own life at the time and why he decided to come. And there were two, two things going on. One was the war which uh, kind of summoned him to Israel, which he calls in the manuscript, he calls Israel his myth home. And he has this idea that if the Jewish people is in crisis, then he needs to be here. It wasn't clear to him initially what he was going to do here. He just needed to be here. And that was that was part of it. He was a guy with a very deep Jewish identity. And, um, you know, he was always very open about being a Jew and never claimed to be anything else and never changed his name to something that sounded less Jewish. And that's a very important part of who Leonard Cohen was. At the same time, he's in a personal crisis. So Israel's crisis in many ways is, a, is kind of an escape hatch from his own personal crisis. He is 39 years old. He's in an unhappy relationship, according to this manuscript. He has a child, his first child, who's about one year old, and he feels trapped. He's living on a Greek island called Hydra, and he he feels stranded, and he's in a very dark uh, moment in his life. Leonard Cohen um, wrestled with depression for much of his life, and uh, he was a dark character. We don't necessarily remember him that way because we remember the last stage of Leonard Cohen's career, where he's this elderly gentleman with a fedora, and he seems reconciled and grateful and happy. 
which I think he was at the end, but he wasn't when he was 39. When he was 39, he was a dark, um, unhappy character who's a lot harder to love. At the same time, he's also having a professional crisis. So he has lost faith in his art. He's declared that same year, 1973, he's declared that he's retiring. He says he has no, you know, no words left. He tells one reporter that he just wants to shut up. And this has been reported. So people understand that Leonard Cohen is kind of losing, <laughs> losing the thread and that he's um he's he's stepping off the stage. And that that's all, you know, swirling around in his brain on October 6th, 1973, when the Egyptians attack across the Suez Canal and the Syrians attack across the Golan. And at 2 p.m. on Yom Kippur, Israel's thrust into you know, one of the worst moments of its history after 1948, a moment that, as you, you point out, really marks the country permanently. Israel after the Yom Kippur War is a very different country. Yes. So Cohen comes for, all, for those many reasons. He walks out of his little house on Hydra, gets a ferry to Athens, boards an airplane to Israel, which wasn't that easy because it was very hard to get seats on airplanes to Israel, but somehow he kind of manages to get on an airplane, lands in Tel Aviv, and embarks on this really remarkable concert tour. Mm -hmm. Although it's not for publicity. I mean, it wasn't like he was playing Parker Yarkon or something. You know, and as you said, it was incredibly difficult to even find the remains of any kind of witnessing of it. It wasn't filmed. There's a few pictures that show up in the book. And I would imagine some of the people who held those pictures didn't even realize who was in them at the time. And it's kind of like it's under the radar, but... Uh, like, how do, you, how do you read that? He, it's not like he went to play for the Israeli public. He specifically went to the front. I mean, he's in the Sinai. Right. Well, <sighs> right. I mean, first of all, he, he doesn't come to play at all, which was something interesting mm -hmm. that I learned when I wrote this book. He uh, came without a guitar and he came having announced his retirement from the music business. So it's quite clear that he doesn't come with the idea that he's going to perform for soldiers. Israeli performers, whenever there's a war, go to the front and play right. for soldiers. Right. But that's an Israeli tradition. I don't think Cohen even knew that that was the case. And when he met people after landing in Israel, he told them that what he wanted to do was volunteer at a kibbutz. And I, I met one woman who met him at that time and remembered that he had told her that he wanted to pick grapefruit. And um, and others heard that he intended to go to a kibbutz that needed men to replace the men who'd been called up to the front and that that was how he was going to contribute to the war effort. So mm -hmm. he didn't actually come to play for troops. And what happens is he bums around the country for a few days and we have really interesting kind of funny yes. um, account, <laughs> accounts from him of what he was doing, you know, after he landed. And then he's in a cafe in Tel Aviv called Cafe Pinati, which is a bohemian haunt. And he's sitting in a corner when he's recognized by a few Israeli musicians who are also in the cafe. And these were quite famous stars of those days, but Leonard Cohen had no idea who they were. And they recognize him and they go over to his table. And when they ascertain that he's Leonard Cohen, they ask him what he's doing here in the middle of the Yom Kippur War. Mm -hmm. And Cohen says, I want to volunteer on a kibbutz. And they said, forget that. Um, we're going to play for soldiers. Come with us. Just totally random. Just a total random meeting. Well, that's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. He was in this cafe. He was approached by the musicians. And that's how the whole thing happened. It wasn't his intention when he came. Mm -hmm. So where did he get a guitar from? According <laughs> to the records that we have, which again, are quite scant, the, um, the artists who are kind of <laughs> convincing him to come play have connections in the Air Force. And in fact, their first concert is at an Air Force base. And someone in the Air Force, an education officer in the Air Force, comes up with a guitar for Leonard Cohen. Um, when we see photos, some of the photos of the concerts in, in Sinai show Cohen playing the, a guitar that belongs to Mati Caspi, who's mm -hmm. one of the musicians traveling with Cohen and who happens to be really a 
a kind of musical genius in Israel, right. a very famous artist. At the time, he was only 23, so he wasn't that famous yet, but he went on to be a major figure in Israeli music, and he had a guitar. And when we see Cohen playing guitars in some of the concerts, he's playing Mati Kasabi's guitar. So it was a, it was completely improvised. There was nothing organized about it. These were not big concerts. It wasn't a PR tour. He wasn't here to drum up international support for Israel. He was playing for a few dozen guys in the desert. Sometimes he was playing for three or four people in the desert. We have these really incredible accounts of soldiers who meet Cohen at the front in the middle of the war sometimes he's alone with mm -hmm. his guitar and it's uh, the, the disorganized nature of the tour and the very raw nature of the tour is what makes it such a powerful musical moment there's nothing commercial about it there's nothing exploitative about it and there's nothing political about it it's a very right. deep and kind of um primal connection between these soldiers at the worst moment of their lives and one of the great artists of the age about as unmanipulated in a very in the world that we live in now where every move is manipulated and you know that everything you're seeing on social media is not just happening somebody's behind it and we're all being used this is like completely unscripted that's right it's it's a really beautiful moment in that way and it's completely you know removed from our own time you know in our own time every soldier would have had a cell phone and it would have mm -hmm. been photographed and filmed and someone would have made political capital of it and right. we would expect cohen to have had the idea of 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 how this would affect his image whether positively or negatively it, it, he seems to have had no inkling of that at all it was a completely you know spur of the moment gut decision by him that he needed to be here and he wanted to help these people with whom he felt a familial connection. Mm -hmm. And it, it gets more complicated for him as the war wears on. And, and by the time he leaves Israel, his sense of very deep identification, I think, has become muddied by the events. Right, right. But initially, when he arrives, it's out of a deep identification with the Israelis. He asks the Israeli musicians to call him Eliezer, which is his Hebrew name, mm -hmm. Eliezer Cohen. And he, um, in some of the photos, is wearing something that looks a lot like fatigues. So he's he's kind of gone native, at least in the initial stage of, of the war, pursuing this very deep Jewish identification that he had. You know, what you just said about his, his feelings are muddied. I think that might be an Israeli moment for him, because I think that happens to a lot of Israelis, where there's the clarity for all of us, the love of Zion, the deep de you know, desire to do anything we can for this country. And then there's the reality, which sometimes we say like, whoa, what the hell is going on here? And who's making these decisions? And why are people dying for seemingly random decisions that don't make any sense? And people will grieve for the rest of their lives for something that maybe could have been avoided. So it seems like to some degree, as the war progresses, he, he feels that himself. Right. That, that phrase that he uses, myth home, is an interesting one. When you're outside of Israel, you can see this place as a myth. Mm -hmm. But when you get here, you have to deal with the fact that it's reality. And yeah. that means, you know, that it's a human society like other societies, which means, like you said, people are making bad decisions and there are tragic consequences to those decisions. And in a war, you see that really in the most kind of, you know, um, oh, clear gosh. way possible. But a commander makes a decision. Soldiers do something. Some of them die. And Cohen, okay. Cohen was there for it. And he has a moment in the war, which, which he recounts in this manuscript, which is really quite an unbelievable document. And I was really lucky to not, not just to find it, but to be able to publish parts of it. Thanks mm -hmm. to the Cohen um, estate, which gave me permission. He that's, recounts that's being at an, he recounts being at an Air Force base deep in Sinai. It seems to have been an Air Force base called Faid, although he doesn't mention the name. And a helicopter lands with, uh, with wounded soldiers. And these guys are in really really bad shape. And Cohen, um, at times the musicians who were with Cohen had helped unload casualties from helicopters in between concerts. And Cohen seems to have seen these guys up close and he, he became very upset. And someone came up to him and said, don't worry, 
Leonard or Eliezer, um, these are Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And and he's relieved. Mm. He's relieved to be told that these are actually enemy soldiers and not Jews. And right. then he's then he catches himself and he says, and this is the quote he says, I hate this relief. This is blood on your hands. Right. The idea that it's okay that it's the enemy, um, you know, that's that's that flies against everything that Leonard Cohen represented. He was a universal poet and he couldn't be the he couldn't be a guy who was relieved that these young men were Egyptians and not Israelis. And I think at that moment, which happens close to the end of the war, he starts stepping back. That's when things get a bit complicated for him. And of course, as Israelis, we deal with complications and continue our lives here. He wasn't from here. So after the war, he he leaves and I think carries those complications with him. And it's one of the reasons I think that he almost never mentions this afterward, which is one of the most interesting aspects of the war tour when you understand how deep he went into the war and what an impression he made on the people who saw him and how really powerful this experience was. It is quite amazing that he almost never talks about it until the end of his life. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why. I mean, it had to have been then so deeply affecting him because he was not someone who shied away from tough emotions and from putting them into words. So this had to be so beyond even what he could do. That's what your sense was? I think you're right. I, I think that's right. I mean, he he has, of course, a way with words. He's Leonard yeah. Cohen. He's one of the great, you know, word artists of the 20th century. And yet there are certain things that maybe he couldn't um, or he found difficult to put into words or possibly, possibly his own place in these events was mm-hmm. complicated for him. So he kind of puts it aside and, and there are hints of the war in his, in some of his work. There's a song called Night Comes On, where he's suddenly in the middle of a song about these very intimate episodes in the life of his family. He speaks about the death of his mother and the birth of his children and a marriage that goes south and right. all of which are taken from his life. And he, in the middle of the song says, we were fighting in Egypt when they signed an agreement that nobody else had to die we were fighting in Egypt. Hmm. So it kind of comes out of nowhere. Certain hmm. sometimes in his work, it had a big role in, um, in, of course, the most obvious example in the song, Who by Fire, which is written right. immediately after the war. The song Lover, Lover, Lover is actually written in the war. But there's, there's almost never an explicit reference to the war and what Leonard Cohen was doing in the war, mm-hmm. which is which is very interesting. And of course, that just adds to the kind of complicated nature of, of the story that I try to tell in this book, Who by Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, how did you, I mean, can you tell us how you got a hold? Cause this manuscript seems to have been really the key to the book. It, the only written, the only thing that he wrote about it, which enabled you to really have some insight. Um, can you tell us how you were able to get that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, was kind of casting about for some way to get, um, information from inside Leonard Cohen's head. And he seems, and I was kind of combing through interviews and trying to find anything that he'd said about it. And, mm-hmm. and there was very, very little. And I found a footnote in a biography of Cohen that was published in the 1990s. It's called Various Positions, and it's by a scholar named Ira Nadell. And in this book, which doesn't go deep into the Sinai tour, the Sinai tour was generally seen as a footnote um, by by people who were interested in Cohen. And and there's a short reference to the tour. And in that reference, there is a quote from a manuscript, which seems to have been written during the tour and a reference to, uh, in a footnote to to this manuscript. And I said, wow, if there's a manuscript written in the tour, I, I need to find it somehow. So I got in touch with Ira who's very generous in, in helping me figure out exactly where this manuscript was, which turned out 
turned out to be pretty complicated. It was in this library, um, the the archive of McClellan and Stewart, which was Cohen's Canadian publisher, which was kept at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And I got in touch with the, with the university. And initially they said, we have no such manuscript. And I wow. kind of gave up. And this was stretched over a period of maybe a year of kind of going back and forth. And ultimately a really intrepid librarian named Chris Long uh, at the McMaster University Library. And I'm mentioning his name because I owe him big time. He, <laughs> he, he dove into the stacks and he pulled out this manuscript and he wow. scanned it and he sent it to me. And wow. when I saw it I, and I started reading it, it was a eureka moment because of course it was exactly what I'd been looking for. It was not a journal because Cohen wasn't a journalist and he didn't think much of dates and uh, you mm-hmm. know concrete details. So it's quite literary and it's very strange. It's a very weird manuscript, mm-hmm. unedited, unfiltered, but it's a raw account of Cohen's work experience written immediately after it happened. And that made it very valuable for me. I think you're right. It was the key to the book. Sure. Sure. And then after that, things change. I mean, it's clear this is some kind of turning point in his life. I think that's true. It's not the only turning point in his mm-hmm. life. Cohen, you know, um, has many crises, but I think this is a big one and a very interesting yeah. one. You know, we know that that year he said he's retiring. He's 39, so it makes sense that as a rock star, you're not going to, you know, be rocking uh, past Unless you're 39. Mick Jagger, but yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. There <laughs> Some are a few of these guys are out there now. But, right. but in those days, I mean, we have to remember that the, you know, the thing to do as a rock star was to die at 27. Janis Joplin, yes. Jimi Hendrix, and Jim Morrison, and people weren't singing into their 40s uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And even Mick Jagger, if you told him in 1973 that he'd be playing into his 70s, he probably would have, you know, laughed. Yeah, but um, right. but um, so, so he, he's, he's having a crisis and, and, and sets off to this war in part in the hope that it will somehow restore his voice. He's looking for some kind of rebirth. And he says that in the manuscript, he says, as he heads off to his myth home in Israel, he says, this is a place where you can sing again. So he has this idea that something might happen to him that will free him up and get him out of the rut that he's in, which which seems unrealistic. Uh, yeah. Because why why would that happen? Given what's happening here. But right. but it happens. Yeah. It happens. And Cohen is such a cagey character in interviews and in his writing. He never says, you know, I went to the Yom Kippur War and then I got my mojo back. And you know, he'll never say anything like that. He'll never make it right. easy for us like that. So all we can do is note that before the war, he was in a very dark place according to his own account, and he'd announced his retirement. And that mm-hmm. after the war, he releases one of the best albums of his career within a few months of the war. It's called New Skin for the Old Ceremony. And it's the album that has Chelsea Hotel on it, but it also has Who By Fire, which is directly influenced by what had just happened. Right. And Lover, 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 which is a song that was actually written at an Israeli Air Force Base. So something happens in the war that restores his faith in his art. And we have to kind of imagine what that would have been because Cohen won't tell us, but the experience of playing concerts that were a matter of life and death for people who, you know, were really at the darkest moment in their lives, people who weren't paying for tickets, no one was buying records. There was no road crew. It was completely not commercial. It was a pure artistic transmission. And that experience seems to have restored Cohen's faith that he had something worth, worth singing about. So I think it's, it's true to say that the Yom Kippur War somehow resurrected Leonard Cohen and that, and that, Without the war, we might not have that late Leonard hmm. Cohen, the post, you know, age 39 Leonard Cohen. And of course, it's it's after this moment that Cohen writes some of the music that became some of his most famous music, most um, 
I guess uh, the, the, the most uh, obvious example is Hallelujah, which is his right. most famous song. He's written afterwards, but If It Be Your Will, which might be his best song, and Dance Me to the End of Love, and You Want It Darker, and dozens of songs that change the course of, of pop history are written right. after this war. So it's an important moment, I think, in music history and, of course, in Jewish history. Do, do we know anything about his children? Yes. I mean, I, I don't, I personally don't know that much about his children. Mm-hmm. And this book isn't, um, it's not a biography of Cohen. And right. at the like time of the, there's a great, by the way, there's mm-hmm. a great biography of Cohen that I I can recommend called I'm Your Man by Sylvie Simmons, which is great for anyone who's interested in Cohen. It's an excellent biography. And there's, there's a lot of information in there. I really focused on this one month in 1973 right. and I really went micro on it. And I tried not to get involved in other aspects of his life because I really wanted something that was very tightly focused on this moment. That's how I work. I I choose one very small thing and just go in as deep as I can. But Cohen has two children, one of whom was born at the, one of whom was about one year old at the time of the war. That's Adam, his son, Adam Cohen, who's a musician. And when he comes back from the war, another, you know, another way the war changes Cohen, according to Cohen, is that it it drives him to try again with his family. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he'd had this unhappy relationship and he really wanted out. And the, this manuscript that he writes at that time is full of really violent language directed at his, at his partner, Suzanne. Right. And, uh, and when he comes back from the war, he tells his biographer that he, uh, he'd seen something really awful about the world and it made him want to tend his own garden. It made him want mm. to try to have something you know, in the world. Right. And he and he tries again, and and mm-hmm. that his second child, a daughter whose name is Lorca, named after the Spanish poet Lorca, she's she's born after the war. It's not exactly nine months after the war, but it's right. something like that. And it, it seems also to have been a result of this kind of shock to the system that Cohen received in mm-hmm. Sinai in October '73. It's almost like a boomerang effect. Like you go into a kind of situation like this, happy you're going to come out depressed, and he went in about as depressed as a human being can be, short of being suicidal and comes out in some way reinvigorated. Right. There's, there's a great, Crazy it's thing. true. I mean, that's absolutely true. And there's a great quote from Cohen where he says, you know, people say I'm a pessimist, but that's not true. A pessimist is afraid it's going to rain. Mm-hmm. Me, he says, I'm already wet. <laughs> so when he goes into the war, you know, he, he's, he's already he's wet. <laughs> there's only one way and it's, it's up. And, and there's something about that state of mind that really speaks to the soldiers as well, because he's not, you know, trying to cheer them up. He's not no. dancing around and trying to make them laugh. And it's not kind of upbeat music to raise morale. It's this really serious music that some would see as depressing. And, and there's that, there's a joke that Cohen went off to Sinai to depress the troops but that's that kind of spoke to soldiers on their own frequency, and there was something about it that seems to have really touched them, and there was something about them that seems to have really touched Leonard Cohen. Well, for some of them, his is the last music they ever hear. Right. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about these concerts, that it's clear to everyone that, you know, as soon as Cohen plays the last chord, these guys are going back out, and whether it's hopping in their fighter jet and heading out to risk everything over the Suez Canal mm-hmm getting into their tank or, you know, wandering off into the desert. And, you know, we don't know how many of the soldiers who saw Cohen play made it or didn't make it to the end right. of the war. But um, but it, that was clear to everyone that that was going on. And of course, that's an incredible thing for an artist. It might have led to feelings of inadequ- inadequacy on the part of Cohen, but it's definitely, it's not like they're, you know, stoned in a dorm room. Right. This is a serious business and they're facing fate. And here's an artist who's topic is fate that's his subject and you know the the human soul and it seems to have been a pretty fortuitous meeting of of the artist and the audience 
from the Israeli side, what were you able to find out? So this book, as much as it's about Cohen, is about the Yom Kippur War, and it's an mm-hmm. attempt to use the war to see Cohen in, in a new light by taking him out of his usual context and throwing him into a completely bizarre and extreme context, which is a war in the Middle East, and at the same time to use Cohen to see the war in a new light. Because when we follow Cohen around the front, we get a completely different picture of the Yom Kippur War, one that's not about generals and politicians no. and the great battles. I mean, we don't meet any any of them. We, we meet Ariel Sharon. Right, he's but, in one of the um, pictures. Right, but just, right. in pa- just in passing, and it's just not that Yom Kippur War that we've all heard about. So, so it b- became clear to me early on that this book could not just be about the tour because what made the tour so amazing was where it was happening and who was hearing it. So I set out to find soldiers who'd seen Cohen, and I just it took me years but I would find one soldier who saw him and get a phone number and get passed on to someone else. And I went through newspaper archives to find references to the Cohen tour to try to figure out which units had seen Cohen and what happened to them before the show and after the show. And um, that took a long time and, and, and ultimately produced the portrait that I, that I present in this book of the Yom Kippur War, where you get the stories of soldiers and what's happening to them at the front interspersed with the with the appearances of Leonard Cohen often at very bizarre moments and in very bizarre places so uh, what i learned was a that the Yom Kippur war was you know an absolute nightmarish um experience it's really hard to imagine i mean 2600 israelis are killed in the 3 weeks of the Yom Kippur war and israel at the time was barely barely 3 million people and the the army almost loses the war and it's an absolute catastrophe and you really have to kind of delve into the material to really get it because like you said we know what happens we know that the army manages to pull it out you know somehow pull it out of the bag and and somehow squeak out a victory but but they don't know it as it's happening and even the victory doesn't really feel like a victory and the, the the stories really bring that home another thing i learned is that the people who saw leonard cohen in sinai never forgot it and kind of filed it away as one of their most potent memories of the yom kippur war which is interesting in itself because it seems like a very peripheral memory who cares you know that leonard cohen showed up you know more interest more important dramatic and tragic events were happening all around these people and yet the appearance of this canadian poet with his guitar and his strange music at the front this seems to have left a really deep impression and many of the soldiers who i interviewed described it as an almost religious experience and um that that added an an additional level to the descriptions of these concerts Mm mm-hmm you know, it occurs to me, speaking to you, that there are probably very few people who could have written this book aside from you. I mean, given your your personal makeup, the fact that you're also from Canada, the fact that you served as a soldier, the fact that you're bilingual, so you were able to do the research also in English in Canada, but also talk to the Israelis here and understand where the Israelis are coming from, that you've lived in Israel during wars, you understand the highs and the lows. Um, I think that this was really your book to write. Did you ever sense that? Thank you. It did occur to me, not at the beginning, but as I worked on it, that I think I was, you know, yeah, I was kind of specially designed to do this book because uh, because of the languages and because of the um, the Canadian angle, which mm-hmm. which Americans often miss. Right. But Leonard Cohen was really a Canadian artist, and that's very important to know. It's, it was important to him to be Canadian, and it's important to me to be Canadian. And Canadians are different from Americans in, in, in important ways. And I kind of, I think, more connected to that just by virtue of having grown up in Canada, although I grew up in a less cool city than Leonard Cohen. He's yeah. from Montreal and I'm from Toronto, which is a very lame city compared to Montreal. But I don't know um, anymore, but maybe it, then. Yeah. It is, it, yeah. it is. Um, Torontonians don't like to admit it, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, yes, I think that I was kind of um, 
you know, kind of uh, perfectly matched with the subjects, with the subject matter. And I have enough military cred right. to be able to talk to soldiers about their war experience. But at the same time, I have enough English language journalistic cred for me to go to the Kona estate, for example, and say, mm-hmm. you know, can I have access to this material? And um, what's one interesting aspect of this book has been watching it be received in Hebrew and in English in my two in the two halves of my life so it came out in hebrew before yom kippur and was um greeted in israel really as an israeli book not as a not as a translated book and that's because it is it's an israeli story and it works in hebrew on a very deep level because people remember it happening and many of the readers remember the war and israelis of course absolutely love leonard cohen and consider him to be an israeli artist who happens to sing in english and then at the same time to watch it come out in english and be received same book almost word Mm -hmm. to word word for word but um to be received kind of differently by the emphases on different um, aspects of the plot. So um, yes, two, two halves of my mind, the Canadian half and the Israeli half were fully engaged in the writing of, of this book. And had that not been the case, the book would be a very different product, right. I think. Maybe it's just some kind of turning point for you too, like to be able to really maximize all your skills in this last publication of yours. Thank you. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that there are that many more great Canadian Israeli stories to tell. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's like a rich vein that I'll be know. able to mine or if I just wrote the only one. Seagram's maybe, I don't know, something. Yeah. <laughs> right, no, but uh, so I, this is maybe really not a fair question. What do you prefer, the Hebrew or the English? Mm, I, I Like any parent, I can't choose which right. kid I love. I love best. I mean, I wrote it in English and it was translated into Hebrew. So obviously mm-hmm. my own words are close to my heart, but um, the, the book was translated into Hebrew by a wonderful translator named Amir Tsukerman. And the translation is so good that I I almost, I've almost convinced myself that I wrote it in Hebrew. Wow. And but you just admitted just, to all of us that you didn't. Which is completely untrue. Okay. Oh, no, no. His name is on the book. <laughs> I would never take credit. He did a wonderful job. So right. good that I'm trying to steal his credit. And I, I, there's something special about seeing it in Hebrew. And there's something amazing about seeing the way it was received in in Israel, which is really beyond the dreams that um, I had as a as an immigrant to Israel. I came when I was 17 and, and I thought first of, at first I thought I'd be a farmer and then I thought maybe I would be able to write in English about Israel for people who live abroad and maybe I'd be able to explain something about Israel to people who don't live here or who read about this place in English. And that was really as far as my dreams went, it never occurred to me that I'd be able to introduce Israelis to new aspects of their own country. Mm-hmm. And that's happened with all of my books. And it's been an amazing experience. And especially with this one, you know, people have called me up. It's Israel, so anyone can find your phone number. And people sure. have called me up to discuss the book. People have written me emails asking why I didn't interview them about their experience with Leonard Cohen. So people have had a very immediate response to the book, in, in, in large part because the Yom Kippur War remains such a, you know, such a, a huge and central experience for Israelis. So the book really hit a nerve and it's mm-hmm. it's an amazing thing you know, for me as someone who is still kind of an immigrant uh, to see not. that happen. It was really, yeah. But maybe this is kind of your acceptance into Israeli society, even though you may still like you're Canadian, Israelis are relating to your book like you wrote it as an Israeli. And that's, that's right. That's not that's- a small thing for those of us who have, you know, come to a new country and are trying to make it our own. Right. Yeah. I'm still kind of um, you know, t- really touched every time I, I get some feedback about the book in Hebrew or about previous books. People don't seem to treat the books as translated books, but as Israeli books as they are. These are very Israeli mm-hmm. stories. And I'm, I'm helped by the fact that because they're peripheral topics, 
they are new to Israelis as well. So if I was writing a book about the Yom Kippur War, probably Israelis wouldn't be interested because they have their own books about the Yom Kippur War, which are better than the ones that are written in English. Mm -hmm. But this is a story that Israelis don't. I've never had spelled out for them either. And my previous book about Israel's first spies is a story that's never been told in Hebrew. And the book before that about my outpost in South Lebanon, that was completely new to Israelis. And my first book about the Aleppo Codex was also a story that had never been told in Hebrew or in English. So just by virtue of choosing these peripheral stories, I've kind of happened to have written stories that are new and interesting to the Israeli audience as well. Well, it's also because you put the human factor in there. You're not writing a history book. You're very much putting the human factor into here. Thank you. I mean, that's really what I'm interested in, not the sweep of events or the, you know, the details of which division went where Mm -hmm. or which politician said what, but the human story and the human story is universal. So if it's done well enough, then, you know, then anyone can read these stories. And even if you don't care about the Yom Kippur War or about Leonard Cohen or about my outpost in Lebanon or about Israel's first spies, if the human story is good enough, the story will be gripping and it should work in, in any language. Um, and that is, I think, why these tiny stories actually can be translated when in many cases, broad works of history cannot be successfully right. translated from English into Hebrew. Well, I know that for me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, you managed to strike a balance between like half the book I'm crying and half the book I'm smiling because, and that's the world. I mean, you know, terrible things happen. And also sometimes the greatness of human spirit comes out at exactly the time where you think it's all going to hell. Um, and you managed to grab onto that. And in a world, I think, where everybody's trying to stay comfortable and safe and not deep, that is a very Israeli experience to feel the grief and feel the joy. Like today, I mean, we're, t- we're having this conversation on Yom Rishalayim on the day where we um, celebrate, you know, the Six-Day War and the liberation of, of Jerusalem. And there's a lot of grief in there, not just for the people who died then, but for the ensuing 55 years and the mess that it still is and the mess that it still will be. Um, and also the great joy of being able to go to our holy places and, you know, and, and all those things that people dreamed about for so long. And it's exactly in that space that we in Israel live, which almost doesn't seem like you can, but yet somehow we do. Thank you. That's, that's beautifully put. And I, I agree. And I think Leonard Cohen himself appreciated that in war, there's incredible beauty and you see people at their best. And he has an amazing quote where he says that, you know, he talks about the beauty of life in the desert during the war, where he says every gesture has significance mm-hmm. and, and people are, you know, nobody's goofing off. He says, everyone's kind of, you know, <laughs> engaged in what they're supposed to be doing and they're sacrificing themselves for each other. And so there's a beauty in that at the same time as there's horror in that. And that's very much his experience of the war. And that's life. I mean, in Israel, things are very extreme. Everything's so small here. And so, you know, like the events follow events and you have something amazing. And then five minutes later, you have something awful. And (laughs) and that's, that's Israel. Maybe Israel makes it maybe more focused and easy to see, but that's just humanity in general. That's life. Some things are amazing. Some things are awful. Sometimes awful things have to happen to enable the amazing things and we all have to deal with that and that's at the heart of the story i agree and 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 leonard cohen is very much aware of it and i think that adds something to the to the book Mm -hmm. and i think also i mean for me one of my personal peeves is that too many people in the west especially have this sense of entitlement and don't appreciate the tremendous sacrifices that have been made in order for them to live the way they do and i think that he didn't have that definitely not after the yom kippur war there was no sense of entitlement for anything 
I agree. And it's also his generation. He's born in 1934. Mm -hmm. So he remembers the Second World War and he remembers a world without Israel and he remembers the Holocaust and he was alive and, right. and old enough to remember. And, and for people of that generation, it was much clearer <laughs> what they had to appreciate. And unfortunately, a few kind of, um, you know, uh, sated generations in the West have left us with a lack of appreciation of what we have. And I think it's Memorial Day weekend now, right? In the States, if I... And if that I means that there's a lot of shoe sales. But right, much, and, and that's... Right, how and, much caring for the people who made America great and who weren't around That's right, because from, from, for most... Exactly. For most Americans, it's completely theoretical. I mean, most people haven't been in the army and they've right. never seen a war and it happens 8,000 miles away from, from them. It all seems very theoretical. It's not. It's very real. Like if those, if the 1.5 million Americans in uniform weren't doing what they're doing, Americans at home would not be enjoying the safety and prosperity that they do, but they don't see them. And in Israel, it's so close. You know, I, I live in in Jerusalem and right. I can walk on the street and I'll probably see some soldiers. I'll see some police. I can get on my bike and within 15 minutes, I'd be in the old city, which is pretty tense today. And we have, you know, thousands of police and soldiers trying to keep the peace. And, um, that's so, it's so immediate for us. I was in the military, which would never have happened if I, you know, stayed right. in Canada, my kids will be in the military. So everything is very, very, um, real and close and tangible. And at that moment in 73, Cohen really, really felt it. And, and mm -hmm. that's, um, that's, yeah, I think this big part of the power of the moment. Right. Mati Friedman, uh, Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen and the Sinai. Listeners, I cannot recommend this book enough. Um, just make sure you have a few hours when you sit down to read it because you're not going to be able to put it down. Um, whether you knew Leonard Cohen's music, whether you're familiar at all with Israel, it's, as Mati said, it's a human story. I mean, it's, this is the setting and it's not historical fiction by any stretch of imagination. But it's a, it's a very real and raw book. And I am so glad that you wrote it, really. And uh, any ideas for your next one? Uh, not not yet. Not yet. Give me some time, Eve. I just got this one out. <laughs> okay. I, need, I need to breathe for a few months, but I promise that there will be another one. And I hope you'll have me back on to discuss uh, it. I, of course, will. It's an honor. Really, it is. And uh, it's always a delight to read you and to speak to you. And uh, thank you so much. So, Yom Yerushalayim Sameach. And... Um, Looking forward to your next contribution to all of us. Mati Friedman, Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen and the Sinai, available in all the usual places. Yes? Terrific. Okay, everyone. Give me feedback. I'll send it on to Mati when you read the book, and I will make sure that he hears it. Okay, everyone. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Thank you so much for joining me. I will really, really try to be here every week. Um, it's not for lack of caring or responsibility. It's just too much going on right now. I hope you're all well wherever you are and that the world is somewhat normal, even though that seems like a ridiculous thing to even say. Okay, take care, everybody. Goodbye for now. Join the Land of Israel Network Fellowship. Sign up today and join the revolution, inviting the world to learn Torah from Judea with Jeremy Gimpel and Arya Bromwitz. We may come up short on becoming the person we want to be, but that's not the point. Happiness is progress. Wandering aimlessly through a meaningless life is a recipe for suffering. What could be worse than walking around the desert for absolutely nothing? But as long as we are walking toward the land of Israel, every step has purpose. For more information, visit thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship.